0: Before we jump into today's episode, I have some exciting news to share with you. One of the questions I get asked all the time is, do you have any tips to help our team while we're conducting our equity audits? Well, now I do. Get my brand new ebook, Three Essential Questions Every Equity Team Must Ask to Conduct Equity Audits That Make Real Change. It's your team's blueprint for action. Plus, the book comes with a cheat sheet guide at the end that can help your team use it to support your work. As I've been sharing it with folks, they've asked, well, is it $14.99 or is it $9.99? And you know what? I'm making it absolutely free. (laughs) That's right. I just want to get this information into the hands of the people who need it for absolutely free. To get your free copy, all you need to do is to go to equityaudits.com forward slash ebook. That's com forward slash ebook. Enter your name and your best email address and I'll send it to you right away. So grab your free copy now. All right, on to today's episode. Do you work within an inequitable system of education and you've been trying to do equity work but you keep hitting roadblocks? Or have you decided to work specifically within the system to make profound racial justice change and can use some advice and encouragement for moving forward in your work. If you've answered yes to either of these questions, then you are in the right place. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green. I'm a tenured professor, and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders, and I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real-world insights and practices that work so that you can collectively build racially just schools. On today's episode, I had the honor of speaking to Dr. Mary Rice Booth, who is the author of the best-selling book, Leading Within Systems of Inequity in Education, A Liberation Guide for Leaders of Color. Dr. Rice Booth has over more than 25 years of experience in education. She served as a teacher, a principal, a principal coach, a curriculum designer, and an equity officer. She currently serves as an executive director of curriculum development and equity at the Leadership Academy. She began her career in education as a high school English teacher in East Harlem. During our conversation, we talked about how to hold simultaneously both rage and love as you do equity and racial justice and liberation work. We also talked about how to build a coalition for the work that you're doing, particularly when you're working in a system of inequity. And we also talk, talked about like how you might navigate this current racial, political, social moment in which we're in, to continue to do transformative and powerful and robust racial justice work. And we talked about so, so much more. Hey, if you are a superintendent or are you are a principal or you are in any leadership capacity in a school district and you're doing work around racial justice and equity, this will be one for you and your team to listen to. I'm excited for you to hear it. And if you're ready to get into today's episode, we will in one second. But first, I have a special announcer.
1: Welcome to the Ra Justs Podcast. With your host Dr. Cha Dogre, he's my daddy and he's the best.
0: Let's go. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Terrence L. Green, and I am your host, and yay. You have picked an amazing episode to join us on because we have an amazing author, an amazing scholar, amazing leader, the one and only Dr. Mary Rice Booth. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Glad to
0: be here. well, Well, thank you for being here. We're so glad that you're here. And I'm super excited to talk about your new book, which we'll talk a lot about. In a moment, but to begin, I love uh, for our listeners to just get a sense of you know who you are. So I want you to think about your life, your professional journey. If it were a movie trailer, and like, who are some of the people? What are some of the moments, the institutions, the experiences that shaped you in becoming the person you are now?
1: Yeah, um, that's a big question. I love the idea of, of being a movie trailer, though. So it makes me. <laughs> try to make it a little bit short. Um, But I think a couple of the experiences, particularly in K to 12, that I feel like continues to ground me and continues to kind of be the center of, of, of uh, how I, what the work I do and is some of the interactions that I had with, with leaders and teachers growing up. And then unfortunately not positive. Um, But I definitely remember, I think that the, the one that kind of Continues to hold up with me is actually kindergarten um, and being in kindergarten and looking around the room and being placed in the C reading group uh, without any type of assessment or, or testing, and then looking around and seeing all the other brown kids in that class are all in the C reading group. Um, and I knew I knew how to read, and I knew probably most of my colleagues I knew how to read, and I think that. Um, that kind of always sticks with me, um, in regards to, you know, I, it it motivated me to make sure I got to the A reading group by the end of the year. But the fact of the matter was I shouldn't have been placed there to begin with. Right. And it it was clear that, and that was kind of also the moment at five years of age, which is why we need to teach, talk about race early is I recognize the fact that this was a race based issue, Like this is a race based, um, a uh, decision that my teacher was making um, and I think that really has has carries with me when I particularly when I see the pattern over and over again and I think um kind of fast forwarding that is probably the re- that is the reason why I got into education and got into be a teacher because I I never had anyone that looked like me um is as a as a teacher as a leader and I felt like it was so it, the the um, I kind of did my own Black Studies course through college and through high school, um, and noticing like, why should I have to do this myself? Like, why should I have to be by be itself be self generated to kind of learn about my history and and how the central role that we played and how much we value education, um, be it um, even though people may think differently. And so, I think that's. Being a teacher, um, and I intentionally was a teacher and principal of, of students who were underage and overcredited, because again, I wanted to focus in on those students that people had kind of written out um, and didn't believe that they could get to the finish line. And so just kind of putting my all of my 110% and ensuring it and knowing that they actually had people, adults in the school building that really believed in them, I think was, 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 um, was really kind of um, important for me. So I think the seeing, being a student and seeing the, the what the lack of, of of high expectation can impact a kid, and then making sure that I myself was leading through a lens of ensuring I had high impact, um, I think are the kind of the book ends that really tell me, that lead me and kind of push me to do this work and get up every day um, and do the work even though it can um, oftentimes be challenging.
0: Uh, I want to jump right in and talk about your book, your your brand new book, folks here, you can see it, um, is Leading Within Systems of an Equity and Education, a Liberation Guide for Leaders of Color. And I just want to say, before we start talking about the book, I really enjoyed the book for a couple of things. One, it's just super practical. It also mm-hmm. is at this intersection I like to talk a lot about, about being theoretically rich, but powerfully practical. And I think you nail it. I think you give good examples of what people actually experience in schools and it's easy to read. And so if you haven't gotten this book yet, folks, I want to highly recommend that you go out and get leading within systems of inequity um, in education. So uh, please, please go. out. I highly, highly recommend the book. So thank you, first off, for your labor of love in writing this book from all your experiences, from being a principal, a nonprofit leader, uh, someone who was an equity officer and working with equity officers. So first, I just want to say thank you for this book.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for. I appreciate you being one of my early readers. Um, and and looking at this book, and um, I, it was. I think uh, I, I say it in the beginning, but this really, this book was for me and people like me. Right, like being able to see, um, wanting something that. Um, that talk to my particular story, right? And and just like you said, like our, you know, there's so many people that have similar stories than we have. Um, and, and being a leader, leader of what I, you know. We'll, we'll talk about publishers, but I wanted to call it leaders of the global majority because that's who we are. Um, but it's leaders of color um, is, is, is the book. But um, I think that our stories are unique, but yet not unique. And I feel like there's there's not enough platforms to kind of share our stories and share our triumphs. Um, and so I, I, I feel very privileged um, that I had the opportunity to do that.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, well, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, one of the things early in the book, you start to talk about this idea and the reality of white space and white spaces, they permeate school districts, schools. You you set this beautiful narrative up of kind of like how we got here and how we stay here. But there are a lot of schools that are working towards, you know, uh, liberation or racial justice and equity, but they're still steeped in white spaces. And so I was wondering if you could spend some time just talking through like, what is white spaces? What are white spaces? How does it show up and like, why is it so important for leaders to confront this and the work that they're doing around equity or racial justice?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it it's, um, you know, it's so hard to sometimes define it because it, it's just in, it's everywhere. Right. Um, in regards to like what the white space is and how it shows up and. Um, um, in the book, I did talk about the fact that, like, it, it becomes even it came even even clearer when we went through the process of, of, of integration, right? Um, and the fact that, like, we now had these we had opportunities as as folks of a global majority to be able to go into it. We, you know, we were supposed to go into schools, into colleges, into um, you know universities and and hospitals and all these things, right? And there's are theoretically legally, we were able to kind of walk into this space and, and be seen as equals. But in reality, we were not. Um, and then the space did not change, right? So the space that was very much created for folks that did not look like us, did not have our experiences like us, um, continued to, to go on and move on um, as, you know, as usual, right? And just thought like, oh, you're the one that's supposed to assimilate uh, into, to, um, doing what we're doing versus us changing because you are now here. Um, and I think, um, I think the piece, the, the white space and assimilation, I think goes hand in hand, right? The, the white space is kind of what was, what we, um, what we're walking into that very much, um, continues to, to behave and act and interact as if they are, um, they, their main, um, their main customer, right, for lack of a better term, is white, right, and is privileged, um, and is um, has all the 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 um, those privileges versus um, the folks that are actually in front of them, right. And I think we obviously, you know, we we both are talking about education, so I mean, that's where we kind of feel like we see, we definitely see it a lot in education. Um, you know we both can talk to the, about the fact of you know, a kindergarten or a second grade, how much that white space permeated and kind of made the influence, the decisions of our teachers um, and how they interacted with us. And so um, it was a decision point. Like I had a decision point at five years old. Do I, um, you know, just be okay with being in a C reading group um, and, you know, be like, oh, may, that must just be where I'm supposed to be. Right. Because that's what this white space told me I has created. That's the space that I, that's the only space that has been created for me is this lower level Area, right? Versus saying no. Actually, that's not the space that I want to be in, um, and I'm going to actually try to push push as much as I can as a five year old, trying to get to the space where I think I actually can be can, can be successful. And so I think the um yeah that white space is the it's um sometimes it's hard for us, especially for for you know this is um, we were just talking about my mom. My mom and uh and I uh, argue about this a lot about the fact, and she's you know a um, coming from the South to the North end, um the just being in the white space was success, mm-hmm. right? Like having access to the white space, like you, you've made it, right? Like we're good, yeah. right? And the fact is like, well, yeah, okay, we're in the white space, but it's, I'm not thriving here, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm just surviving, right? Yeah. And she's just like, well, you know, but you made it, right? Like you should be happy because yeah. you made it. And I feel like that's not enough, right? Like that's not enough for us just to say that we were there. Um, we have to be able to be successful and feel like we're whole. Well, when we're in there,
0: yeah, you know that's that's so good. I mean, you can when you you can feel it, right? You can feel when you're in those spaces, even if you don't have the language to narrate like what's going on. You can feel it, and no one has to explicitly call you out of your name or call you something racist. But you can feel being in those spaces, and it's important to guard against. It not being so norm that we become numb to the feeling of the white space. But you, I'm laughing inside because my mom and I, we debate all the time because she used to have this saying for us when we were growing up. She used to say, you know, uh, as as soon as you learn how to play the game, the better off life will be. And I remember I used to like, okay, I internalized that. But then I remember I had a conversation. I was like, I don't want to play that game no more. And I want to do something radically different, right? And so I think the beauty of this work is that we can hold with, with grace and appreciation our foremothers and forefathers, those who have come before us, and we can embrace what they've done, and we can take it more expansively into another dimension and another level. Um, but yeah, that that generational piece and, and just the ideas of it. Um, but speaking of that, you make me think of, so I really appreciate in the book how you lay out these 10 competencies. But you don't just lay them out, you talk about the, why they're why they are important, but then like how do you embody it, right? The embodiment of them, but then how they literally become like threats and antidotes towards like this white dominant white supremacy that so much permeates schools. And this first one, or early on, you talk about these emotions of both rage and love. And I want to talk about that because there are times I think earlier in my career that I was so deeply enraged, but I realized. I would not last that long if I stayed only in that place of rage. But then there is a profound place of a radical love that one can engage in. But I think the rage in many times is an expression of the love. So, but could you talk yeah. about leaders, what it may look like for leaders to to hold the tensions of both rage and love and what that might mean for how they show up in their work?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think that that compensates. Um, um, definitely surprises folks a lot, and just to let and I'll be clear. It also surprised me, right? Because again, I think you know we are we are brought up to the idea of being a professional means that we keep our emotions in check and like you know and separate from our work. And I think um, every every person that I interviewed kept talking about the fact that they led through this lens of love, and I'm just like I. I don't do emotions. <laughs> I keep my emotions from, you know, I keep it outside. You know, when I was a principal and I would have a, a, you know, a teacher come in and start crying, I'm just like, oh God, like why? Yeah, like I, you know, the the idea of, of having to um, manage somebody else's emotions was just like not something um, that I was comfortable with, right? Because um, I felt like I'm a professional, right? Like, you know, I think that also because I went into leadership pretty young, um, I was always also is I I didn't want to be labeled the angry black woman. Like that was like something that was very much the top of my mind in regards to like how people were um, perceiving me, right? Um, and and I definitely kind of internalized that. And so, um, continuing to hear through the folks I was interviewing with, they kept coming up with it. And then I, then of course, in doing the research part of it. <clears throat> dived into kind of bell hooks and, and Cornel West talking about this idea of a love ethic, right? And the fact that like, in order for us to be actually reached towards liberation, we need to actually love the people that we're working with, right? And if you don't, if you're not, not using the that concept of a love ethic, then we're not going to get to liberation. Um, and then, then when I went back and thought about the kids that I was working with, um, they're overage and undercredited. I'm like, of course, like I had to love them, like like the time and effort that I put in into ensuring that they got to their finish line and got to make the choice about what they wanted to do past high school, Um, I had to use love in order to get there. And so I think that's where the love comes from. And then with the rage, I think, um, you know, one of the, the kind of the, the, um, uh, the things that I give as a as how to make it as practical as possible was to about to redefine the trope. Um, and I think it was important for me to be able to say like, yes, um, you know, because the majority of people that I interviewed were Black women. And like, how do we take take a hold of this idea of being the angry Black woman and redefine it and actually use it as fuel for how we lead, right? And the fact that, but again, um, you have to have, you have to be angry because our students are failing every, are being failed, right? They're, right. They're not being successful. And if you're not angry about that, like then I think that's that's a problem, right? Yeah. Like, and so like, how are you using that angry to, to anger, to fuel you to kind of move through it to action, right? So I think that it's important to, to highlight that. I'm not saying that you're just going to, you know, you should walk around just being pissed off all the time, but like, <laughs> you should, you should walk. How are you going to use that anger to actually move you to action and, 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 um, when you get up in the morning and you're not upset about what your data is telling you, if you're not upset about the stories that of, that your students are saying that where they're not being seen and heard um, and valued and you're, and you're not upset about that. I feel like, okay, now it's, it's time for you actually to take a minute. Like you need to take a beat. Right. If you're, if you're not feeling that emotion um, for our kids. So.
0: No, that's, that's so good. And I, I love how you, you you normalize and center like our emotional selves because you're right. There, were, I feel like so much of the professional work, it was like you had to check your emotions at the door. But if I'm checking my emotions at the door, I'm checking a part of who I am. Right. And yep. so that that rage piece, I've specifically as black and as leaders of the global majority, we have to be cautious not to uh, because anger and rage can be used productively. But if we hold it in it can become destructive to ourselves, right? Physiologically, psychologically, emotionally. And you just, you you have now, like your your body physiologically feels it and experiences it, right? And so having the spaces to where you can work collectively with folks, but channel it into shifting systems radically is so, so important because we've lost too many people like literally whether it was physically or emotionally or psychologically to this work, because it literally can take such a toll on you like that. And particularly black women in the yeah. roles. I know you talked to, I think, 32 equity officers and three principals, particularly in those roles, they can literally start to eat you up.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. And a lot of times it's because you are holding something, right? right. Like you're like taking, yeah. like literally holding your breath. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I was talking to a group of, of um, black principals a couple of weeks ago, and they're just like, "Well, he's like, so how does what does that actually look like and sound like, right? To be able to like say to actually show emotion in in a professional setting, um, and I feel like I have I have the privilege now in, in working with my my peers, which are a lot of white women. It's like, I just name it, like, look, I'm like, this is this is how I'm feeling right now. I'm not angry, I'm not mad, but I do. I am, a, I am upset right now about what's something that's happening. So I need to name it, right? And I need to be able to tell you how it is that I'm feeling about what just happened, right? And so for me, that is, that's the way that I redefine it is by like, I, you know, I just name it. Like this is, this is the emotion that I may be experiencing. And so I'm going to be, I want to, I need to be able to, to say it to y'all and you all not. Come back with like, oh, well, you're so emotional, Mary. You're, you know, doing whatever it may be. Um, and I think they've gotten used to it enough <laughs> to um, to be able to just say, like, okay, that's just Mary. Just being able to, she's put putting it on the table something that we need to be able to to see and talk about. Um, but it is important for us to be able to have that strategy and not um, and not hold it in because yeah, it it can definitely uh, it can kill us literally,
0: yeah, literally, literally. No, that's good. Naming it, I love that. I love that. You know, one of the other competencies you talk about in there, I think, is super powerful um, in part because we know like we can't do this work by ourselves. Right. That it takes a collective. It takes a group of people. And I, and I love how you draw Ella Baker. You draw like social movements. And I think oftentimes people say this just, you know, tongue in cheek. They'll say, well, you need to build coalitions. Well, yeah, that sounds great. But like, how do you actually start to go about to build coalitions? And like yep. you said, you build multiple coalitions. So could you folks who are they're 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 in their districts, they're in their schools, they want to do this work. Um, they may be experiencing a lot of resistance, but they understand they need to start to build coalitions. What might you offer to those folks about how they might go about to start to do that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's so critical. I think um I think first you need to recognize the fact that you can't do it by yourself, right? So I think a lot of times, especially folks in that equity officer or equity role, coordinator role, we are set up to be these super people, um, right? Or, you know, these magical Negroes that are going to kind of, you know, um, do this all by ourselves. And I think first recognize the fact that like, that's not going to work, right? Like I, you know, you have to to be okay and know that I need to, I need people around me to be able to actually um, do this work and do it well. Well, um, I think the first thing I talk about is the fact is being really clear about what your objective is. Right. And so you need to be clear. About, so what is it that I'm trying to to do with this group of people? Right. So are they here to give me feedback? Are they here to walk side by side with me in regards to like focusing on this area, right? Like, what is the actual very clear objective that this coalition is going to do? And then recognizing that you need to have more than one, right? So you're gonna you go you you may be creating this coalition of folks that are inside and outside that's kind of kind of be the accountability arm, right, within your district. But you also, you need that coalition of people that may be outside that are doing similar work that also they, they're going to fuel you as well. Uh, going back to the love and rage piece, I could go to feel you socially and emotionally as well, right? So just not, and then you're going to probably need coalitions of people that are um, just internally, right? The people that are going to have the meeting that you can have the meeting with before the meeting, right, for them to be able to kind of, you know, um, be that partner inside. So I think it's reconne- having an objective, realizing that you need more than, more than one, um, and then being really clear about who are the people that I'm going to choose as part of the coalition. And I think sometimes it, it is comfortable and easy to choose the people that, that think all is very exactly like us. Right, because it's comfortable, right, and we kind of feel like that's that that's clear. But I think it's also important to be able to let me bring other people to the table that may have differing opinions than I do, um, or may have right a different perspective. Because I think that's also really important for us to be able to have them close to us, right? Because we kind of get a a different uh, um, insight, Um, and then also I think that they can then hear and help develop a more universal message, right? So I think. you know, we're in, we're in Texas, so we know that our, the messaging is really important um, in regards to what we're saying. Um, and so, folks that may have different perspectives may give a, a give us some insight in regards to how we message our work, um, so that we get more people um, that's going in the same direction that we are as well. So, those are some of the ways to, of uh, really us for us to think about when we're building a coalition.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Now that's that's super helpful. And one of the things you. You highlight in the book is around um, as we're building these coalitions to to navigate these political landmines, and in the current racial, political, social moment that we're in, there are political landmines all around, and from anti-CRT bills to banning of books to uh, firing folks, just like this 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 racial white lash backlash from anything that happened in 2020 that was moving forward, anything prior to that. And so I'm curious, yeah. like, what would you offer? And even even districts getting rid of, you know, their their equity offices or equity officers and not yeah. planning to bring them back. So I guess yeah. what might you offer to folks who are doing this work, but they're in these highly fraught political landmine spaces And in this particular moment, what might you offer to them about how they might navigate and and continue to build um, coalitions?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the folks that I talk to that are in um, in Texas or in Florida, in Iowa, what they're doing is that they kind of have a a two pronged approach. So they're they're going underground like so they're they're doing you know, they're Harriet Tubman with it, right? So in regards to like, they are kind of really, um, doing their work, but doing it in behind the scenes, right? Um, and having other people that are leading, um, creating, again, going back to creating coalitions with the folks that are willing to be the loud folks. And so, um, are you you know, Are you going to be in support of the person that is going to um, say what needs to be said at the school board meeting or at, in, to the newspaper while you're kind of working with them? But you may not necessarily be saying that you're working with them, right, um, to in order to kind of move forward. So I th- there are definitely folks that are kind of doing that, continuing to do the work, but are not necessarily um, vocal about what the work that they're doing, and then they're also above the ground that they are um, are being very savvy about language, about um, and about kind of how they are are connecting with people. so um, you know i I have mixed feelings about people changing language and changing titles, but um you know, that's kind of the nature of the, the beast right now that some folks are. So I have folks that are now, instead of being chief equity officers, they're chief of strategic partnerships or special initiatives, right? So they they completely have taken the word equity or diversity or equity or inclusion out of their, you know, their title. Um, and there are folks that have also just kind of been really cl- been very cautious about the language that they're using when they talk or even in message, right? So um, you can't argue with the fact that we want we want to ensure that all students are academically successful. You can't argue with that, right? Like, can you, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, like, I feel like that's pretty, pretty language that people can't push back around, right? And so if you are, um, you know, using that language, then, how are you how is that helpful um in kind of in getting your your moving forward um without kind of having that that um that wrath and so I mean I think even there are some folks that have gone to the space of even like inviting moms of Liberty to a meeting I'm like okay Godspeed like you know like they like going to this going to right the going to the heart of kind of who's being the loudest um, folks um, and actually having conversations about them, asking them like, okay, so what is it that you are asking for? What is it that you need? This is what I'm doing, right? And and again, um, what's if we are all focused on ensuring that all students are successful, my work is not illegal. My work is not, you know, right. I'm not. What I'm doing is making sure that all students are successful, right? Um, and using um, that that conversation. So those are some of the things that I've seen people do um, in regards to kind of keep moving forward um, despite um, all of the um, continual back, backlash um, that they're they're experiencing. Yeah, yeah.
0: You 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 make me think of. Um... You know, an idea of creative insubordination. One of the ideas is to use the language of the institution against the institution, and mm-hmm. this is what Dr. King did. He said, "Just, just be true to who you are on paper." You know what I'm saying? He wasn't asking, like, "Is this what you said on paper?" Be true to that. And so, I think that is that is an important, in uh, a practical way, to navigate. But one of the things that I like about your book that this is bringing up is that the title of the book is "Leading Within Systems," right? So. There is an idea of leading outside of systems, to lead beyond the systems and I think that's powerful and I think it's powerful for people who want to lead within the systems. And so anytime you're working in a system and you're working on it to radically transform it, there are going to be a lot of tensions. There're going to be yes. contradictions. There're yes. going to be nuances and messiness and 1 plus 1 ain't going to be 2. You know what I mean? It's, that's those are the tensions of working within a system and I think folks You know, being clear about that, naming that is helpful. Like, you just, you got to be underground, above ground. But the idea of tensions, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, particularly tensions that emerge when you're working in a system. When you're working in a system, like you laid out early in chapter one of the book, like, this is how we got here. These systems were intentionally designed. For white folks, they weren't designed for anybody that's black. They weren't designed for anybody. Yeah. Right? And so you're working in that, but you're bringing a, a radically different ethos and approach to what you're trying to do. And maybe they say they want to do it, but they don't fully want to do it. And so it creates all right. these tensions. What are some of the tensions that may emerge for folks when they're leading in the systems?
1: Yeah. Um, wow. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think, first of all, I think it's like this, like you have to deliberately want it. Right. Like I think um, you can't be saying I'm going to leave within a system because I want a pension or I'm leaving within a system because I need to make sure that I'm, I'm paying for my kids tuition. Right. So you have to say that I am making a, a conscious decision that I'm going to be the the um, um, the term like the tempered radical within the system, right? Mm. Like I, I'm going to make that decision, right? And so I think that's one thing because I think we sometimes folks like this is a great job, right? Or right? And ever, this is maybe a great career. And when you get into into the system and you recognize how much it is is continually perpetuating this oppressive um, state that you get you you. Um, like there's dissonance, right? Like there's dissonance between like I thought I wanted to do good, but like I realized that the system's actually not built for me to do good, right? And mm-hmm. so I think number one is recognizing the fact that like you, this dissonance is gonna stay with me. And I actually realize that sometimes if you're not feeling the distance, again, I think that's a, a point where he's like, ah, it's time for me to go. Right. Because of that that means that you've gotten you've yeah. gotten complacent, right? You've gotten like, oh, you know, this is good. This is good money or this is a good you know, gig. Um, So I think that's that's one thing is just recognizing the fact that like this uncomfortableness is is part of the job um, and I have to be okay with it. Um, And then also kind of realizing like who, going back to the coalition building is like, who are going to be the people that I can, that's going to feed me. And then also, I think it's important to have an exit strategy. Like, I think it's clear that this, it's, I think it's super hard to do this work within the system for thirty plus years and not get comfortable, um, right? Like I, I just I haven't seen it yet, right? And so I think it is it's important for it to be able to say this is this is enough, um, right? This is as far as I can take it, right? Um, and hopefully you have intentionally built the um, built the capacity of other folks that when you leave, they're going to keep going. Um, but I don't, I don't, I haven't seen. That I personally have not seen. Maybe you've seen, maybe other folks have seen the fact that folks being able to do this work within a system for the long haul and not get to a place of comfort.
0: That's so good. Uh, That's so good. Yeah. I mean, it's because the the system rewards and incentivizes those that allow the system to remain the way that it is. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but that, that piece about there's always going to be that dissonance, right? And so recognizing that is there, locating it, and if you feel like it's not being picked up on the GPS, that should be an indication <laughs> to you, like, we might be going in the wrong direction. So that's super good. And so that's a perfect segue into this next question and thinking about um, not becoming complicit and not becoming um, enamored by the system so much that you lose that fervor that you have. And one of the other competencies you talk about We we didn't talk about this one, but about, you know, getting outside of your comfort zone and working. But I want to talk to you about the one about being persistent, but patient and patient and persistence. And I call it at times being urgently patient, patiently urgent. I guess my question to you is, like, how does one be persistent and be patient? Because my colleague, uh, Dr. Anderson, always said, we want four minute solutions to 400 year problems. Right. And so, like, there is, you know, it's amazing. Like, y'all been on white supremacy since the inception. Y'all get one black professional development vibe, and then y'all want to fire the person because something changed in two months. It's just like, right, 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 exactly. My question, sorry, I'm getting on my little soapbox, but my, uh, okay. my, my question to you is: How does one remain persistent and patient without the patience? sucking them into the system and they literally become that which they're trying to transform. They become the system. How How do you wrestle with that tension?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's an important one. Cause I think um, I was talking to, to um, a, a group of white leaders about the book as well. And they were, when they looked at that, that, that competency, they're like, Oh, wait a second. Like, I don't know if I, I can do that as in the, in a white body because I feel like it will exactly what you just said, like it will take on the persona of me just getting comfortable. Right. And saying like, Oh, I'm just being right. And then, you know, the folks t- said this during this, during the civil rights movement, like you, you know, you're being too persistent. You need to slow down. Right. Mm-hmm. You need to kind of, you know, I'm trying to go too fast. Right. And so I think that it is a, a really cautious line to, to take. And I think it does require you to to be really clear about um, when it's persistence and patience. It's not about people's individual mindsets. But it's about how am I changing systems, right? Because I think that's that's what takes the patience, is when you have to when you're trying to change systems. And so changing systems does require this particular persistence. And unfortunately, we saw it on the on the other side when we saw affirmative action go down, right? That that's a prime example of being patient but persistent, right? Mm -hmm. Those folks were trying to to disarm affirmative action for decades. And they did it, kept doing it slowly and methodically breaking it down until now it's gone. Right. And so like, what, like, how do, how do you now, so on this flip side, when we're trying to move towards liberation, how do we, how do we do the same thing in regards to like, you know, methodically moving towards changing law changing systems. And I think um, I I lift up Paula Murray um, in this Mm -hmm. book about as as one example of of a person who, they, again, methodically, that was what they always focused on, right? They focused in on on amendments, on, on laws, on, on processes, right? And like, how do I, how this, and then they really did in order for them to kind of move forward. Um, and they worked on that for decades, right? And kind of methodically doing that. And I think that's something we, um, sometimes we get so, we want the the exactly that quick answer, um, and the fact is that exactly it took four hundred years for us to build this, so it's going to take time for us to to dismantle it. Um, but you have to, but you have to always continue to wake up and say, what am I going to do today? What more can I do today, in order to be able to persist than I did yesterday? Um, and if, again, if you lose sight of that, I think is is um, is then when you get comfortable.
0: that's so good that's so good the distinction too about being you know persistent and patient as you're changing systems not shifting and changing people's hearts and minds so i think that's super important um distinction there so thank you for for sharing that that's so good that's so so good and yeah you're right i, I like this idea of methodical um i love that i like that idea of methodically approaching this work because you are exactly right around the affirmative action i mean they have been Playing the long game and the intermediate and the short game and everything in between, and so yeah. it wasn't a surprise to them because they have been methodically working at this for decades. So yes, yes, that's so good. Um, you talk about also this importance of taking a stance for a liberatory education system, and when I read liberatory education system and even in your writing, even just the the that that phrasing it sounds to me like something that's more robust than just a more diverse or a more equitable system. And I'm curious, you know, folks here who are working towards creating something, I think in the book you say, just need to create something new altogether, There's something in there. Um, if, they, if folks are working towards creating these liberatory education systems, I guess, what would they feel like? What, 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 what might you experience what might you, what might you hear? What, like, what will be going on in that type of an education system?
1: hmm Yeah. Um, I think, number one, I think you would, you would be, it would feel and, and sound like something you've never heard before, right? Because recognizing the fact that we've, we haven't gotten there, right? Like we haven't experienced liberation yet. So I think that that's really important. I think it's also important for us to recognize the fact that that's, when you are when you're able to to wake up in a minoritized body and you don't feel like you have to put in on any type of armor mm-hmm. um in any type of way because you can you can walk into any space in any place and know that that you can be your can um say what you want to say do what you want to right like you are able to to really um embrace who you are i think that's that is liberation um I think when we think about school systems, I think um, so much of our school system is built in for, for the adults. So I think that, um, liberation would mean that as the students feel seen and heard and, 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 valued and the adults are there just to ensure that that happens, right? So we are not making decisions through that space of what do the adults need, what do the adults uh, require? Um, but it, this is here is about students. and I think so often we want to say that we are student centered school or school centered. um, 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 school system, but when you're thinking about who's making the decisions <laughs> or who's creating creating everything, it's still the adults that are doing it, right? And so I think when school systems are actually built for those students that are coming through our doors every day, um, I think that would be actually uh, liberation. Um, I think about communities, right, and how the community would be completely different formed, so that I am, I'm, um, I'm fed into not, not just physically but also mentally spiritually right and like everything all of those institutions um, that that are that, that touch me are there to again support me um, and to be successful so I think those are some of the pieces when I think about liberation um I think I think about that and just the the need for us to um, just decenter um, whiteness all all, all together um, and really focus in on those folks um, that haven't, haven't, um, experienced what does it mean for, for them to be, um, the focus of, of, of everything and in every interaction that they have.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I know we're coming towards the end. Just have a few more questions. And one of the questions I definitely want to ask you, um, knowing that you've convened a national group of, um, equity officers and chief equity officers and this equity officers collective and coalition that you've, you've helped to beautifully build and invited me to be a part of. So thank you. Um, I'm curious, what might you offer on two fronts offer to superintendents um, and boards that have created these positions around how they might support folks in this role um, or teams that are doing this work. But then I, I guess this other part is like, what might you offer to States? Like how might States mm-hmm. start support this? And I know at one point conversation about maybe some national standards, something like that. But like, what could states do to support? And then what would you say to the superintendents, the school board members who are listening here who have chief equity officers or chief diversity officers in their districts, how they might better support them so that they can thrive in their roles and in the work that they are doing?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I think, unfortunately, so much most of the those roles were built as a reaction (laughs) to something right to reaction to an incident or interaction or whatever it may be and we know we need somebody to come and help help us look better right um and so i think the first thing is going back to what was your intention about creating this role and then you may may need to redefine your intention right so kind of what is it that you actually ask what's the actually purpose and objective of this role um and how are we now going to set up that objective and purpose in order for this person to be successful, um, I think it's important for us to recognize the fact that, again, um, this is it cannot be a person it has to be it should be an office or a writer or be able to have this connection with multiple people. Um, and so um, I think a lot the, the counter to when people say, well, do we I don't need an equity officer, I need a diversity officer, well, I'm like, but you have a, an officer of teaching and learning. Like we're, you're right. Like we're all, you say we're all responsible for teaching and learning, but you have an, a, a chief a teaching and learning officer, right? So like you can't also, you can't use that same argument for for you know equity. So <laughs> there's a there's a reason why we have somebody right and in, in, ahead of teaching and learning. So that's why we need to have somebody in, in, ahead of equity because you need to have somebody that is that accountability person, right? So, but how are you actually going to give that person? the the skills and support in order for them to be successful in their role. So they need money. They need, they need a budget. Cause again, you, you give a budget to the teaching and learning person. So you should need to give a budget to the equity officer. They need staff. Right. And then they need access, right. Just as just as they're trying to create access, the equity officer needs to have access as well. Um, I really do think that there's a very different experience from the equity officers I work with that report to the superintendent versus those that don't report to the superintendent. It's a very different experience, right? So having having that person report to you and then realize the fact that just because this person has a job, right, and just because they report to you doesn't mean you're off the hook, right? Like as a superintendent, as a school board member, you are still equally responsible, just like you're equally responsible for teaching and learning, you're equally responsible for ensuring that we are creating an equitable school system. So how are you actually verbally, physically, making sure that everything that you're saying is through the space of ensuring that we're trying to create equal systems. So I think that's some of the, you got to have a very clear purpose and objective, and then you have to give them the resources and the support um, necessary um, and staff necessary in order for them to be able to to do the work. Um, And recognize the fact that this job and you know, I'm currently sit in as an equity officer of a nonprofit, and sometimes um, I'm clear with my my CEO. It's like I I need to, you to know that my job is to sometimes say the thing that you don't want to hear, mm. say the thing that's going to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. And thankfully we have a, a very we have a very strong relationship that I can do it. Um, but realizing that as a superintendent, like sometimes like they're gonna they have to say the thing that we don't want to hear. And if you haven't created a relationship and the space for them to do that again you're going to it's going to be hard for them to do their job.
0: I guess one of my last questions is that I guess where what's next? Where do you see this work going next? The the work on anti-racist education, liberatory education, racial justice, equity, diverse. Like what's what's next? Where do we need to go? Where do we are on like the precipice of I guess I guess what are you sensing right now in all your work, the folks you're working with? What's next?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I and mean, I think the what I um, have been hearing and what I see is that there's a lot of um, people that are focused in on practice right now, right? Which is important, right? Like focusing in on like what does this look and sound like um, in my my classroom, in my school building, right, in my school system, in order to really have to to create li- a liberatory system, but then. Again going back to kind of what actually creates a libertarian system is actually policy and then we also need to back it up by research right And so I think um, I would the and I, I get the um, you know we all have have developed expertise in one of those areas, right either practice research or, um, or policy but I would I would love to be able to see those three legs come together constantly and 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 always be in unison and talking to each other um i think that's how we actually change things um is when you have those things come down again and again historically we've we've seen um the the impact of when we see policy change versus when we see practice change or if we, we we have the research that backs up the policy and the practice so i think that's where i think folks are interested in going um and i think people um i feel like hopefully we have um the access um, and support to be able to, to bring those three pieces together.
0: Gotcha. Well, this has been very rich. And uh, one of the ways I love to um, end all the episodes to just ask a series of just rapid questions. So whatever comes to mind, uh, we'll just love to hear your response. So uh,
1: okay. ready? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so the, the first the first question is, if there was a movie made about your life, who would you want to play you? Who would you want to star as you?
1: This is so funny. I actually literally had that question asked for me earlier today. And it's wow. been the same person since I was like 16. So I may need to change it, but it's always been Regina King. Um, yeah. Regina King from 227, Regina King. So like yeah. <laughs> that that yeah. her has always been the, the person that I um, would always want to play me.
0: My second, the next question is, if you could have a nine hour plane ride, I know a nine hour plane ride is long, but if you could talk to any person, someone who is here, someone who's transitioned, um, like who would you want to have a conversation with for nine hours and why?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if I'm able to do somebody who's transitioned, it's a toss up. It's, it's hard between Zora, uh, Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison. I'll go with Zora, who is my, I uh, name my daughter Zora. Um. And I think that would be her, just because I think um, not only of her, just to hear about her writing process and her um, who and how she approached kind of her work around um, um, collecting stories, but like just her, like she was somebody that just stayed true to her, who she was, no matter what, right? Like she just like, I'm going to do my own thing. Um, no matter, you know, whoever is going to talk about me, going to talk about me. And she just stayed true to who she was um, in a time period that just, that seems so difficult to do. Um, so I feel like I have, I would have a lot of questions for her.
0: Gotcha. And what if you can only listen to three, they could be bands or they could be single acts. If you can only listen to three folks music, um, for the rest of your life in perpetuity, you only got three people you can get you can get their whole catalogs but who would be the the bands or the the individual artists you get three of them that
1: you would want to listen to Wow, wow, that's a tough one um okay so i yeah hmm-hmm I got I to gotta do folks that like have a big catalog. <laughs> uh, so I have a, I have a lot of things to listen to. Um, so the first person I think about is Prince. Um, just because I feel like I can, whatever mood I'm in, I feel like I can get, get that from Prince. Um, a second person would have to be Jay-Z. Um, so again, somebody who's been... Around for a long time, I can get you. And um, I just, um, yeah, I just feel like he's one of the greatest lyricists that there ever was. Um, a third person, um, it's funny. B though, I'll, I'll just do somebody um, doesn't have a a long um, a big catalog, but I could listen to this album over and over again. And that would be Lauren Hill. Like I can mm. listen to the miseducation of Lauren Hill over and over and over again. Um, and I probably did when it came out. Um, and every once in a while I'll just kind of go through it, um, again. So that'd be it.
0: Wow. That, that's a powerful group. And I, that would be a powerful <laughs> concert if they got together and yes, miseducation of Lauren Hill is one of the best albums ever. So yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much. When the last thing, like where can folks learn about you? Where can folks find out more about what you're doing? Where can folks go ahead, folks, and get a copy of your book? Where can folks, they want to work with you, consult with you, where can they find and learn more about you?
1: Yep, yep. Um, so I'm on all social medias at mricebooth. Um, don't forget the E at the end. Um, so you can always, you can find me there. Um, and I have a sub stack as well. I have a newsletter that comes out twice a month that kind of, it kind of shares a little bit about what I'm doing, um, as well as I continue to put out um, interviews of, of folks that I, um, uh, folks of the global majority. Um, and what was, it, what was the last thing you said asked about? Oh, where to buy the book? Yes. Um, So for those who, well, you can be local or not local, is that um, I love to be able to support, to support, Small businesses, and it's Black Business Month, so Black Pearl Books, um, that is in um, that is in Austin. Um, they have the book available for you to purchase online, um, and hopefully, it will be in in, the, in their store soon as well. But you can definitely purchase it um, online there. Um, unless you want to read it tomorrow, then I guess you can go to Amazon. Uh, but um, if you if you're willing to take a, a little while, which I encourage you to do, um, please support them.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, I'll definitely link all of those into the show notes so folks can get access to your information to you and to the book. And again, I just want to say thank you so much for joining the podcast. Super excited. And this was very rich. So I'm excited for folks to hear this. So thank you for being a part of the Thank
1: you. Thank you so much.
0: All right, y'all. In the words of Marty Marr, we out. See you when we see you. Peace. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining hope you enjoyed it and i am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts what i need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button share with a friend and please leave a review love reviews And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe, rate it, and leave a review on iTunes. And until next time, peace.